Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I just want to bid you welcome to Hudson Institute. I um, want to bid you welcome to our panel on China's growing influence in the Indian Ocean, implications for the US and its regional allies. Um, I'm Jonas Prado-Plessner. I'll be moderating uh, today. So that's um, with great pleasure that I accepted that task. Although in reality, it's my uh, colleague, Dr. Nagao Satura-san, who's actually really been the mastermind behind this, uh, this panel. So I'm basically just helping out in the moderator uh, role. Um, what, is, uh, what are we going to talk about? Um, as, you, uh, as you saw in our intro, for a long time, the Indian Ocean was considered sort of a more of secondary concern uh, with sort of less sort of strategic interest. But that's rapidly changing, uh, driven in a large part by China's entry, entry into the Indian Ocean. Um, for example, China uh, recently signed an almost century-long lease of Hambantota port in Sri Lanka. So that demonstrates its uh, interest in establishing a long-term presence in the region. Um, and China has also been actively deploying warships in the Indian Ocean and playing a generally more active role in conflicts in the region. So we want to dive deeper into what that means for regional countries and what it means for the US, and particularly of the administration's new uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. We have a stellar panel to talk about this. So I'm also, together with you in the audience, looking forward to, uh, to learning much more about uh, the Indian Ocean. And for once in uh, Washington, we go way beyond the, the Beltway. So uh, we have people from the region, from Sri Lanka, from India, from Japan. Um, I think that's also something that will be uh, unique uh, today. So if I just do a very short uh, intro of, um, of our um, speakers. Um, we have Dr. Nagoro, who is a visiting Satro, who is a visiting fellow here at Hudson Institute, where he focuses on US, Japan, India security cooperation. Next here on my list, we have Toshi Yoshihara, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments here in Washington, DC. He's also taught at the US Naval War College. And here, next on my list, I have my other colleague, Aparna Panda, who is a research fellow director here, uh, works uh, on India. And I can um, recommend her book on India. That's uh, on, uh, from uh, um, The Evolution of India's Foreign Policy. That was published recently. And, and then we have um, Asanga. And I'll try, Abaya Gonasakira. Nah, not as good as it should have been. But he's, uh, and he's the Director General of the Institute of National Security Studies in Sri Lanka, which is affiliated with the Ministry of Defense. So he's um, 12 years experience working in government, where he's been serving on the two different uh, president in advisory positions. Um, so to set the stage, um, Satro will, will start first here with his presentation. Um, then we'll go, go through here, then afterwards I'll uh, have some, we'll start some Q&A here on the panel, and then of course open it up for all of you as well to put your questions. Thank you very much for giving a chance to presentation. Indeed, certainly, uh, moder uh, thanks to the moderator, uh, I am the first presenter. And uh, because um, there's a possibility, I will uh, introduce some basic uh, information about the Indian Ocean. So this is a big privilege for me. And uh, so about my presentation, the Japanese presentation. Japanese presentation has started from apologies. For example, I'm sorry to invite you to listen 
really low level presentation. If he really thinks so, he should not invite audience. But uh, to show the poli uh, politeness, Japanese must say so. So in my case, I should, uh, I need apology something. So my apology is answer of my question. Does the Indian Ocean matter for Japan? I'm sorry, answer is no. <laughs> At least in the past. So in 2016, there's 9,000 Japanese live in India. Whoa. But India is, population is 1 billion. This means that 9,000 mean there is no Japanese. So Indian Ocean, how many Japanese we can count? We can count by fingers. One, two, three, that all looks like this. So the view from this fact, does the Indian Ocean matter for Japan? Generally, no. Despite this is the situation, Japanese has started to say, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy instead of Asia-Pacific strategy. Why? The largest warship of Japan, helicopter carrier Izmo, called at the port India and Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean in 2017, last year. Why? Japan decided to donate two patrol ships to Sri Lanka, and Japan is planning to donate used B3C anti-submarine patrol plane to Sri Lanka. Why? 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 <laughs> So something has happened. It looks like Japanese are mad and crazy now. There is a high possibility changing security situation around Japan has pushed Japan to do so. So there are three questions. What change has occurred around Japan? And to adjust the situation, what kind of system Japan is seeking? Security system in this case. And what can Japan, US, India, Sri Lanka cooperation do in the Indian Ocean? What change has occurred around Japan? Nowadays, China has started to expand their military activities around Japan. The figure shows the route China is using around Japan, the red one. And there is their military activities, uh, the area of their military activities has been expanding from first island chain to second island chain, um, which are defense line of China. First island chain is green one, and second island chain also green one, but you can understand the expanding area. And Tokyo is located the second island chain in this map. In the air, number of scrambles against Chinese military aircraft was increased to 851 times in the annual year 2060. So Japanese want to ask, how many halos they want to ask? So maybe, are you knocking door to broke door? So in addition, China's military activities has also been very aggressive in South China Sea, Indochina border area, and the Indian Ocean. So why China's assertiveness has so intensified lately? If history may refer to, the tendency of China's maritime expansion has been based on military balance. When France, United States, Soviet Union withdrew from South China Sea, China occupied island and reefs, which both Philippines and Vietnam claimed. So therefore, need to exist for us to maintain military balance with China. How to achieve that? We need new security system. 
to adjust the situation, what kind of security system Japan and US are seeking? For a long time, hub and spoke system have maintained order in the Indo-Pacific. Under this system, both Japan and Australia are US allies. But Japan and Australia is not ally, share no close security relations. Thus, this system is heavily dependent on US military power. However, the salient feature of the recent security situation is changing US-China military balance. For example, during the 2000 to 2070, the United States commissioned 15 new submarines, one five. During the same period, China commissioned at least 44 submarines, four four. So US allies and friendly countries need to fill the power vacuum to maintain military balance. As a result, new security framework has emerged looks like this. The framework is security network of US allies and friendly countries. This cooperation includes not only US lead cooperation, but also Japan, India, Australia, or India, Australia, Indonesia, which do not include the United States, even if US is central core. So in this case, Japan, US, India, Sri Lanka cooperation in the Indian Ocean will be key. So what can Japan, US, India, Sri Lanka cooperation do in the Indian Ocean? The US became influential country in the Indian Ocean, especially after 1970s. However, since the middle of 2000, China's naval activity in the Indian Ocean have been expanding by using exporting arms, developing ports, which can use as a naval port, and expanding submarine activities So China's submarine attack vital CRM communication of many countries in the Indian Ocean. This fact makes China will be leading status in the Indian Ocean instead of the United States. So can we accept the situation? Japan cannot. What should we do? If India has the will and the capabilities, Japan and the US will be able to release themselves from the heavy burden to safeguard security in the Indian Ocean and can deploy more military force in the East China Sea and South China Sea to maintain the military balance. Can India take responsibility? That is a question. In the past, India's move was too slow. There is a joke, unfortunately. Train come on time in India. It was miracle. It is miracle because this is train yesterday. But now, it has changed. This is the presence India has shown recently. Look at this map. Just wow. It is another miracle. Very well done. So for Japan and the United States, India's new hope. So what could be the contribution of Japan, US, India, Sri Lanka defense cooperation in the Indian Ocean? Japan US will contribute to India's shipbuilding capability to build more warships to show the presence and providing anti-submarine know-how and equipment etc for India is another option in the Andaman Nicobar Island in India just side of the Malacca Strait Japan US are planning to support infrastructure project if the Japan invest infrastructure project in the Andaman Nicobar Island this infrastructure project enhances India's naval capability to detect Chinese submarine activities. 
So, and in this case, not only Andaman Nicobar Islands, but also Sri Lanka provides strategic important location. Furthermore, developing infrastructure in the country around India, including Sri Lanka, Japan-US-India cooperation is useful too. In Bangladesh, has already choose Japan's Matabari port project instead of China's Sonadia port project. Thus, there is a possibility that Japan and India can use a similar pattern. If the Trincomalee port project succeeds, then the importance of China's Hambantota port for Sri Lanka will decline. The possibility exists that Chabahar port project can mitigate the importance of Chinese Guadal port project in Ch Pakistan. Japan-India's Asia-Africa Growth Corridor Project affects China's growing influence in Africa. In this case, U.S.-India also cooperate to training African troops for UN peacekeeping operation, etc., as a capacity building project. Japan-U.S.-India cooperate each other now. So conclusion, nowadays, China has started to expand their military activities around Japan. And the reason is related with the changing U.S.-China military balance. So U.S. allies and friendly countries now require new security framework to adjust the situation. Under the new system, Japan-U.S.-India-Sri Lanka cooperation in the Indian Ocean will affect the situation in the East China Sea, South China Sea, etc. in the whole of Indo-Pacific. So does the Indian Ocean matter for Japan-U.S. relations? Yes, of course now. The time has come to proactively further this cooperation to ensure the prosperous stability in the full of Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Satoru-san. Next on our list, we have Toshi Yoshihara. I forgot maybe to mention it before, but I think it was quite clear during the presentation that the first was on sort of Japanese perspective, so now we'll have sort of the US uh, perspective on these developments and the Indo-Pacific. Um, and we also wanted this presentation to come first because you saw the slides as well, which made that you have a, uh, if you like me, maybe have a, a rusty uh, uh, geography of the Indian Ocean, then you've sort of seen where all the different places, infrastructure links, port projects uh, up on this. So, Yoshihara, up to you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the Hudson Institute for having me here today, and thank you to the organizers, particularly Satsuru and moderator Jonas. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, today, I'd like to speak to you about the Indo-Pacific <clears throat> as a strategic challenge to the United States. And the strategic challenge that I'll be talking about today is about a very difficult balancing act, and that is balancing America's commitment to this vast theater called the Indo-Pacific and matching that with the necessary resources in order to fulfill many of America's commitments across the Indo-Pacific. I want to look in particular through the lens of naval power. Why naval power? Because naval power, frankly, is the final arbiter, the ultimate arbiter of a free and open Indo-Pacific because it is naval power that will deter a revisionist power's ability to deny or to disrupt access to the global maritime commons, and should deterrence fail, it's ultimately naval power that will be able to defeat a revisionist power's attempt not only to 
deny and to disrupt access to the Indo-Pacific, but also an attempt to overturn uh, the Indo-Pacific order. Before I get into this balancing act between commitments and resources, I'd like to do a quick historical review about how the United States, particularly the strategic community, has looked at the Indo-Pacific. While it's a relatively new phenomenon, the US strategic community has been looking at this theater in Indo-Pacific terms for quite some time. So let me take you back to uh, 2001, in particular, the Quadrennial Defense Review that was published uh, that year. In that document, it states very clearly that one of America's key security objectives is to prevent the rise of a hostile hegemon from seizing critical parts of the world. One of them, of course, is clearly Asia. But importantly, the document frames Asia in terms of an East Asian littoral. And it defines in a footnote what that is. It actually looks at the East Asian littoral as a single body of water that stretches from the Sea of Japan to the Bay of Bengal. And what we see from that definition is a glimmerings of a conceptualization of the theater as an Indo-Pacific one. Let me fast forward very quickly to 2007. That year, the US Maritime Services published the Maritime Strategy. And in that document, the Maritime Strategy called for the Maritime Services to maintain credible combat power in the Persian Gulf, Indian Ocean, and the Western Pacific. Again, very much an Indo Pacific conception. What is very important about that document is that it stands in sharp contrast to America's traditional view of itself, which was to see itself as both a Pacific and an Atlantic power, a conception that's been in place since at least World War II. And so this idea that the United States would shift its emphasis towards the Indo-Pacific, suggesting that the United States was already thinking of itself as an Indo-Pacific power, is in many ways a fairly dramatic institutional reorientation for the United States. Let me now talk about some of the strategic military issues that engages American interest as well as American naval power across the Indo-Pacific. And I want to talk about this both in terms of peacetime as well as potential wartime scenarios. In peacetime, what we've witnessed over the past decade are a series of what I call crossover trends. What I mean by that is that Players in one part of the Indo-Pacific, for example, the Western Pacific, increasingly find themselves operating in the Indian Ocean and vice versa. So if you think about the anti-piracy patrols by various East Asian navies in the Indian Ocean, that's been going on for quite some time. Indeed, China is already, in, because of these activities, a legitimate Indian Ocean power. It has been deploying naval forces for anti-piracy um, operations virtually uninterrupted for almost a decade. China's One Belt, One Road initiative, India's Act East policy, Japan's greater activism and permanence in the Indian Ocean, the revival of the Quad between uh, Japan, uh, the United States, India, and Australia, and the reemergence of Britain and France returning to their uh, old sphere of influence across the Indo-Pacific suggest that this is becoming a theater in which both regional powers within the Indo-Pacific as well as extra-regional powers are increasingly drawn to this uh, particular piece of geography. But there are also um, things that we should be thinking about in terms of the failure of deterrence and the potential for uh, pow uh, great power conflicts breaking out. And that increasingly, we have to think about these great power wars in terms of the Indo-Pacific, that they will no longer be confined to a particular theater or sub-theater. Imagine, for example, a hypothetical cross-strait war 
that drew in the United States. It is likely that in that scenario, the United States might conduct a distant blockade against China, conducting naval operations west of the Malacca Strait. In that scenario, you would have a central operation taking place squarely in the Western Pacific, while a peripheral operations would be taking place in parallel in the Indian Ocean. So you can see the connection between these two theaters. Imagine, again, a, um, a major Sino-Indian conflict, perhaps starting along the border, that horizontally escalates into the maritime domain. Uh, we heard, for example, uh, during the border crisis this last summer, uh, Indian strategists talking about putting pressure on China through the South China Sea. We can see, again, the connection between a continental conflict that could expand into the Indo-Pacific theater. Or think of a real conflict uh, in 1971 between India and Pakistan, where there was, in fact, a, a little known, but I think important, naval clash. And in fact, what's interesting about that naval clash in which the Indians launched a surprise attacks against the Pakistani Navy, uh, made extensive use of, uh, at the time, modern anti-ship missiles. That particular naval clash is, in fact, a classic case study for the Chinese Navy. So we already have real examples of conflict breaking out uh, that have uh, a Indo-Pacific character. What I want to talk about now is the challenge, meaning that, yes, there are all of these potential security commitments and interests that engages the United States, particularly the US Navy. But there are all sorts of, I think, challenges, both resourcing, but also strategic challenges that might make it increasingly difficult for the United States to meet those obligations. The first one is simply the vast distance involved. Uh, based on my estimate, a carrier strike group sorting out of Hawaii would take more than two weeks to reach, the, to reach the east coast of India. In fact, it would likely take longer, because that's based on a, a, a set of very optimistic assumptions about how fast a carrier strike group can travel. Overlay on top of that tyranny of geography is the idea of choke points, that the most easiest points of access into the Indian Ocean are all through choke points. Baba Mandeb to the west, Strait of Hormuz to the north, Hormuz Strait to the east, and the other Indonesian straits, meaning that all naval forces having to reach that theater will have to get through those choke points. Now, overlay on top of that, in addition to distance, in addition to choke points, in this emergence of anti-access technologies. China, for example, has medium-range ballistic missiles that can conduct maritime strike missions. If you look at the range arc of those missiles, those missiles not only would be able to reach deep into the Western Pacific, they would also be able to reach into the Bay of Bengal, meaning that a continental power with missile capabilities launched from the Chinese mainland can now directly influence events at sea. Imagine Iran one day acquiring such a capability that would give Iran the capacity to hold surface combatants at risk from the Eastern Mediterranean through the Red Sea, across the Persian Gulf, and into the Arabian Sea. Imagine that future. And of course, what we've also seen in recent years is the fact that the Chinese have, in fact, deployed anti-access capabilities into the Indian Ocean, including the deployment of Chinese submarines that Satoru discussed earlier. And finally, there's a capacity issue of the US Navy itself. Now, there's a tendency to think about the US Navy in terms of aggregates. If you look at the overall size of the US Navy, it's rather impressive. The size of the US Navy as of yesterday uh, uh, was 282 battle force ships. But the reality is that only a fraction of a fraction of that force 
is available at any given time at any particular place in the world. The first fraction is the one-third rule. It's a kind of a rule of thumb, meaning that only a third of the naval force is fully deployable. Another third is working up to replace the one that's being deployed. And the final third is in deep maintenance. And only a portion of that third is actually fully deployed across the Indo-Pacific region. So let me just give you some concrete numbers. In 2015, the United States Navy had 279 battle force ships. 95 were fully deployable, right? That's roughly a third of that force. And given the fact that the United States had to commit those resources to other theaters, only 49 ships were in the Western Pacific. According to the US Navy's plan, after the so-called pivot, by, 20, by 2020, it was expected that the US Navy would only add 17 more ships based on the rebalance or the pivot. I think that gives you a sense, gives you some perspective about uh, numbers. And that really, when we talk about the US Navy, we're again talking about a fraction of a fraction of a force. This is, of course, being compounded by structural problems related to the US Navy, whether it's the post-Cold War drawdown, the shrinkage of the shipbuilding, the industrial base, as well as the financial crisis, as well as the two wars in the Middle East that placed a great amount of fiscal pressures on the US Navy. Uh, it is unlikely that the United States will be able to grow its Navy uh, very rapidly, despite the Trump administration's um, ambitions to build a 350-plus naval force. So under these circumstances, it seems to me that there are really three broad choices uh, that the United States uh, can embark on in terms of its grand strategy. Uh, the first, of course, is to go the, the current course, maintain the status quo, which is to maintain American commitments while, while accepting less capability. That gap between commitments and resources is what people would call a bluff. The United States would, only ha would, would have to hope that no other great power would call America's bluff. Another option, of course, is to reduce American commitments across the Indo-Pacific, as the offshore balancers would have us do. But of course, that has all sorts of potential unintended consequences, including what local players might do in order to maintain their own security. The third, of course, is to increase resources to match those commitments. Uh, but as we've seen, despite the Trump administration's ambitions to build that Navy, a, a very creditable goal, which is to build a, a force that's 350-plus ships, uh, is that both fiscal and political challenges remain. And it remains to be seen how much and how quickly that buildup can occur. But despite this kind of gloomy picture that I painted for you, there is one, I think, area in which uh, the United States has a comparative advantage, something that Satoru also mentioned earlier, which is that the United States enjoys high-quality allies, friends, and partners across the Indo-Pacific. Indeed, this is the one comparative advantage that the United States has virtually over all of its potential adversaries in that part of the world. In fact, if you think about adding in the high-quality navies of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, Singapore, and in India, the naval balance changes, in fact, in quite a dramatic way. And of course, these are navies that are being operated by like-minded countries with shared interests, particularly shared interests in maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific. And increasingly, what we're witnessing, and again, Satoru has already mentioned this, is that frontline states have begun to cooperate with each other uh, through a variety of means. 
And what we're seeing then is an overlapping set of networks that are not primarily driven by the United States. And that navies, of course, is in, in some ways the perfect instrument for this kind of collaboration, both in terms of high-end capability should deterrence fail, but also many of the less visible low-end capabilities, including uh, maritime surveillance aircraft, for example, both manned and unmanned, that can be a great source of intelligence sharing among the various players within this network, or perhaps local training for local amphibious operations in order to help the local states in the Indo-Pacific region to deal with natural disasters in which the host nation may need to project power on their own soil to reach uh, populations that require help. And so, for, so these are some good examples of where navies offer a series of both high-end and lower-end instruments for collaboration. And that through this process, it offers an opportunity for these stakeholders, these like-minded navies, to reinforce and defend a free and open Indo-Pacific. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Toshi. I'll now um, over to our next speaker, Panda Panda, who will speak a little bit on this from an Indian perspective, which of course is very close to, since it's called the Indian Ocean. So uh, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you, Jonas. Uh, good afternoon. I'd like to start by thanking Dr. Nagao for inviting me to speak on this panel. It's a pleasure to be on a panel with Asanga, Toshi, and uh, Jonas. Uh, in my comments, I will focus primarily on how India has viewed the Indian Ocean Indo-Pacific region, uh, especially under the shadow of the rise of China. India and Indian leaders have always seen their country as one that will play a role on the global stage but especially in Asia. Uh, the belief in India as an Asian leader, an example to Asia, is something which has been deeply ingrained in Indian thinking for centuries. However, for decades, India was bogged down and remained bogged down in its immediate neighborhood of South Asia uh, because of politics and security challenges. Slow economic growth uh, also impeded India's greater role on the world stage and resulted in more of an inward orientation for almost four decades. This changed in the 1990s uh, with economic liberalization, the end of the Cold War, and it has changed even further in the last few years. Um, under Prime Minister Modi, India's economic growth, uh, its hopes for military modernization, have led to a rising ambition in international politics, um, as well as a new set of security concerns. Um, India's antagonistic relationship with China, its northern neighbor and rival for leadership in Asia, may have framed its recent policy choices, but it is the not-so-peaceful rise of China that lies at the core of what is happening today. Over the decades, China has not only built its economic and military potential, but it has encroached in a region that India has always considered its backyard, South Asia and the Indian Ocean region. China's deep strategic interests and economic relationship with Pakistan, exemplified in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, China's assistance or high-interest loans to each of India's neighbors, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, uh, China's attempts to create friction between India and Bhutan, and finally, uh, Chinese actions in Maldives are all seen by India as impinging on India's sovereignty and security. For India, South Asia and Indian Ocean are its first uh, layer of security. And Indian leaders have always resented 
the presence of any external power in the region unless that power accepted Indian predominance. Beijing's refusal to do so has irked Delhi. India's immediate neighborhood um, for decades, Indian's policy was to presume this is India's sphere of influence, and the neighbors would accept that Delhi knows best. Growing Chinese presence have made Indian leaders realize that managing a sphere of influence is not simply a function of telling others what to do, but being able to expend resources to deny space to competitors. New Delhi is wary of Chinese bases and ports, especially in the Indian Ocean region, from Hambantota in Sri Lanka to Gwadar and even Jivani in Pakistan on the Persian Gulf, potential base in Maldives, the base in Djibouti. Um, further, China has, over the last few decades, deepened its activities in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Dr. Nagao's maps uh, have showed a lot to you, but uh, just some examples. Since 2012, Chinese submarines have been sighted on an average of at least four times every three months in the Indian Ocean. In 2014, a Chinese nuclear submarine was deployed in the Indian Ocean. And in 2015, a Chinese submarine called at the port of Karachi, Pakistan. Um, India's economic growth and the expansion of its strategic interests beyond South Asia have led New Delhi to realize the importance of its greater neighborhood which is from the Straits of Malacca to the Gulf of Aden. And Prime Minister Modi has called for an expanded role in the Indian Ocean uh, from Asia through to Africa. As part of this desire to e expand security, uh, India has uh, broadened its relationship with countries in the Indian Ocean and Pacific region. The, um, India's look east policy from the 1990s changed to an act east policy in recent years. In 2015, India and Singapore signed defense cooperation and strategic partnership agreements. The Indian Armed Forces have helped build the capacity of Vietnamese counterparts. And in 2017, the two sides held discussions on sale of surface-to-air Akash and Brahmos missiles. Starting 2016, India has trained Vietnamese Navy submariners at its naval training school. India has also sought to build the capabilities and capacities of islands in the Pacific region, including naval support for coastal surveillance, hydrographic surveys, disaster management. Um, India's relations with Seychelles, Maldives, uh, Mauritius, and also deepening ties with Oman and UAE in recent years reflect what India would like to do in its own backyard. In January of this year, India and Seychelles signed a 20-year pact whereby India would build an airstrip and a jetty for the Indian Navy on Assumption Island. One month later, during President Macron's visit to India, India and France signed an agreement whereby both countries will open their naval bases in the region to warships from each other. In 2018, in February of this year, uh, during Prime Minister Modi's visit to Oman, a country with actually which India has historic ties dating back to the British uh, colonial era, New Delhi and Muscat signed an agreement uh, by which India gains access to the strategically located port of Dukum on um, Oman's southeastern coast. And for the first time this year, India and UAE conducted naval exercises. Um, under Prime Minister Modi, uh, India has also sought to deepen the relationship with uh, United States and Japan, um, Australia, Southeast Asia, all the American allies in the region. 
As mentioned earlier, US has for decades been the predominant naval power in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. The rise of China, however, means that Washington needs local powers to buffer its own strength. And as a populous, democratic market economy, India's size and values make it a natural partner. So from being what used to be called estranged democracies and having almost no military relationship, today India is a major defense partner of the US and is seen as an ideal, reliable partner uh, to maintain the rule-based order, which China seeks to undermine. With Japan, too, uh, the economic and strategic relationship has moved forward. Uh, Japan is not only one of the leading countries to invest in infrastructure inside India, but as mentioned uh, by Dr. Nagao, um, India also views Japanese investment in its immediate neighborhood as positive and as a counter to BRI. So Japanese infrastructure in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh, even Nepal, will be something that India welcomes. Um, the closer strategic relationship can be seen from two recent incidents which happened last year, the Doklam crisis and the Maldives issue. During Doklam, Japan was the first major power to come out openly with the Japanese ambassador in India stating no country should try to change the status quo in Doklam. Uh, the United States also emphasized the need for negotiations and dialogue and in effect supported the Indian and Bhutanese arguments. During Maldives, statements released by Washington and Delhi and Tokyo showed a coordination. Delhi urged Maldives to return to the path of democracy and Washington urged Malay to ensure full and proper functioning of parliament and restoring constitutionally guaranteed rights. The Maldives crisis further reinforced Delhi's fear that China was trying to change in the Indian Ocean the on-ground realities. Uh, but unlike in previous years, this time Delhi decided to work with like-minded partners um, instead of doing a go-it-alone strategy. I will end my talk by mentioning something that happened earlier this week when the Indian Navy trolled the Chinese Navy on Twitter. The Indian Navy spokesperson welcomed the PLAN into the Indian Ocean, uh, stating in the tweet, uh, Maritime Domain Awareness, the Indian Navy extends a warm welcome to the 29th Anti-Piracy Escort Force of Plan in the Indian Ocean region. Happy hunting. In a second tweet half an hour later, the Navy posted a map of the Indian Ocean region uh, showing where India's uh, fleet of 50 combat-ready warships are ready, are present, and stated, mission-based deployments from Persian Gulf to Malacca Straits, from North Bay of Bengal to Southern Indian Ocean to East Coast of Africa. The Indian, Noshi, Indian, Indian Navy with 50 ships on vigil 24-7 keep our area of responsibility safe, anytime, everywhere. I will stop here and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thanks, So last on my list, I have a, a Sangha, uh, where I think it would be very interesting both to hear um, your sort of Sri Lankan perspective, um, and particularly as a smaller country in the region, of, of how you see this, and these sort of new strategic wins with China coming in, and uh, both with offers of opportunity and, and uh, challenges. Uh, my fellow panelists, uh, 
distinguished ladies and gentlemen. So um, first of all, let me thank uh, Dr. Nagao for orchestrating this panel, as well as um, the, um, the Hudson Institute. So it's a great honor to speak here. Thank you so much. And um, I, I think uh, what Aparna uh, ended, I would sort of start from there. Um, actually, the dynamics uh, of the Indian Ocean, uh, what's going I mean, the, the tension is so much, and it's been felt from a little country uh, in Sri Lanka, from Sri Lanka. And uh, we've, we, uh, we, we asked these uh, three questions, which uh, Dr. Nagao mentioned, why, 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 thrice, actually. So we keep asking uh, three times because we have a triple sphere of influence affecting Sri Lanka. And that is the uh, India's sphere of influence, China, as well as US. And um, as I sort of um, take you to uh, the geography first to understand why Sri Lanka is important, and uh, I take you to Ptolemy, um, as well as uh, uh, Henricus Metilius' uh, map, which shows that uh, Sri Lanka, identified even in the first maps uh, that was drawn by cartographers, uh, it was important at that time. It was drawn the island in an elongated way because of the trade, rich trade we had with the rest of the world. And this has been sort of um, the geo geopolitical position, the strategic position of Sri Lanka has been so important and uh, from the ancient time. So if you sort of um, uh, put Sri Lanka's position uh, in the present context of geopolitical position or geostrategic position, um, yesterday I ended my class of geopolitics uh, with the students I've been teaching from January geopolitics to the students. And I ended with Brudel, uh, Ferdinand Brudel, and whether the events that we speak here at this panel, uh, whether, it's, whether it's sort of uh, in a short-term wavelength or whether it sort of belong to a long-term wavelength. And that's really important to identify which sort of wavelength in, uh, that these events would unfold. And actually, it's, it's a job for the futurist and the foresight analyst to sort of look at these dimensions. So um, these are the comments that is sort of mentioned by scholars. Um, as you could see, um, Robert Kaplan on the top uh, from his book, Monsoon, clearly identifies um, Sri Lanka as one of the, um, you know, it belongs to the new maritime uh, geography. And John Kerry's report, um, basically one of the best reports that came out, clearly identifies Sri Lanka as a, a, a strategic, um, a geostrategic place. And it should, we should not allow, the United States government should not allow Sri Lanka to drift away to the Chinese sphere of orbit or Chinese sphere of influence. Uh, the next one, Harshvi Panth, clearly identifies, um, this scholar is actually a brilliantly sort of identifies Sri Lanka as why it is important and uh, this particular island. And, uh, and he says that China is rapidly catching up and its ties with Sri Lanka are aimed at expanding its profile uh, in this crucial part of the world. And Indian policymakers should understand, like if you look at the, uh, the history of uh, Sri Lanka and Indian relationship, we have a rich cultural and political history, but the, uh, the tension has been uh, quite intense for the, the 30 years uh, time frame. Um, I call this actually a Kaveri Delta influence, which is the, the South Indian influence to the north of Sri Lanka. And um, if you look at the last comment, that's from Harry Harris. He mentioned the Pacific commander. The Indian Ocean matters to the US, um, and Sri Lanka matters to the US. 
and uh, and the U.S. matters Sri Lanka. So it's it's the significance, the position, geographical position. So you cannot discount it. And I think um, the foreign policy of Sri Lanka is sort of uh, um, is made out of this geostrategic position. And this is uh, I'm taking you back to um, uh, Mackinder's map. Um, and if you look at the um, the Mackinder's map. Um, uh, these are my bad drawings, actually. I have drawn on Makinda. So you could see uh, two outer islands, uh, which is um, the um, United Kingdom and Japan. And those two outer islands, Makinda correctly identified back then, a century before, and uh, having influence, uh, one, the United Kingdom in the Atlantic, and Japan in the Pacific. And uh, I identified Sri Lanka also is playing a pivotal role right now uh, in the Indian Ocean. As we, as we face all these tension, uh, I think Sri Lanka is also sitting just outside the rimland and in the outer circle. So we are also faced with the, the triple sphere influence, clearly. And the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative, which Sri Lanka supported initially, and one of the first um, countries to sort of support the initiative, and as you know, a trillion dollar uh, initiative, which, uh, which sort of gives a promise to boost the economies. I call this actually the Marshall Plan of the Chinese uh, government. Uh, I compare it to the Marshall Plan because what they're doing is they're assisting countries. They're helping by providing loans. And Sri Lanka got the first uh, freeway uh, because of uh, China. And we never had a freeway from 1948 for 70 years. And we, we have that uh, in Sri Lanka now. The infrastructure that's been built by Chinese um, is, you would see it uh, from your own eyes when you come to Colombo. It's quite different. And you can see the six corridors that was identified. And if you look at back to Mackinder's map, it's basically the same strategy of uh, basically going to the heartland and the rimland. So this covers the entire picture. Uh, I mean, it is part of the history and what they're sort of uh, it's a power projection of uh, China, and it's influencing. So Sri Lanka's position, if you look at it, the string of pearls, which is sort of you know the most discussed, um, speculated um, arguments on a discussion. So I relate that to actually uh, Rudolf, um, um, uh, Rudolf um, Schelen, and um, it's also another geopolitical thinker at back then. And I think uh, the idea of China to basically Shalen explains that to be a great power, you need three characteristics. So the spaciousness which China already has, uh, the freedom of movement, uh, they have already sort of uh, established that in the Indian Ocean. And if you look at it, the Sri Lanka's trading position has changed with India. For the last 20 years, the India has been the largest trading partner. but. Uh, last year, that changed to China. So China is now our largest trading partner. Inter internal cohesion, which already China has that. And um, so the string of pearls, if you look at the Hambantota port uh, and the Kwakpu, it's, it's basically the same, um, the lease term agreements and that's going on. So basically what, what Sri Lankan government leased out as well as the Kwakpu is quite similar the strategy. So. India's fear of encirclement. Now, this is uh, basically the infrastructure projects in Sri Lanka. Uh, you could see uh, that's the on the right is the Hambantota port, the massive port development, and uh, which was leased out um, to Chinese for the operation. And um, this is the port. The on the at the bottom is the um, 
the Port City project, which is another 1.5 billion investment, which is going on right now, the, the reclamation of the sea. And uh, they're building a sort of a financial hub. Um, and this is happening right in front of our eyes. And so um, this is the international airport that China has built. Um, again, India is willing, basically willing to take the operations now. And um, uh, so some strategies say that is to counter the Chinese influence in the island. Uh, what you have uh, here, the tower, the Lotus Tower is quite interesting. It is, the, it is going to be the tallest tower um, in the South Asia. And it's, again, a 100 million loan we have taken. And um, what's interesting here is that the, the, the antenna on top of the, the tower which has become a bit of a problem because uh, they say that this was installed um, to intercept India, Indian uh, sort of, um, and the, the, when I sort of, this, when I asked this from a Chinese uh, diplomat and he, he, he mentioned that there's nothing much to listen in India. So that's also quite interesting. And um, the, uh, the, this is the Rajapaksa, uh, the, the previous president uh, who was our, and uh, he mentioned this comment, and uh, after his loss of the um, uh, elections, uh, he says that um, now Rajapaksa signed all these, um, uh, basically uh, all the projects was given during the Rajapaksa's time, which is the, the previous president. And he says that the Indian intelligence was behind my loss, as well as um, you can see the, the two embassies that was working. So directly accusing. Um, and so what I'm trying to sort of say is that the geographical uh, situation of Sri Lanka affects the foreign policy as well as the internal dynamics. And India, Sri Lanka, uh, India and Sri Lanka relationship has to be strengthened in this regard because it affects the internal um, politics of the, the country. And um, some of the recommendations I sort of um, bring in is that Sri Lanka could play a, a pivotal role because Sri Lanka is the, the, if you look at the Human Development Index in South Asian nations, Sri Lanka has the highest among the countries. We have the 98% uh, literacy rate, as well as the World Economic Forum ranks. Uh, we have moved from factor-driven economy to an efficiency-driven only country, which sort of moved um, in the ranking. So Sri Lanka can play a pivotal role, basically, um, um, to play sort of a stabilizer, to become a regional stabilizer. And it is considered by the US as a contributor to the rules-based order uh, in the Indian Ocean system and a good example of a like-minded partner. And Sri Lanka as a stabilizer for the Indian Ocean region, India to play a much more active role. Now, I agree with uh, some of the comments what Aparna made because India has to play an active uh, role. I don't see India playing an active role. When I sort of... Uh, when I look back of uh, Prime Minister Modi's um, uh, leadership, uh, I wrote um, basically a chapter of the Modi doctrine. Uh, and when I look back of that chapter, I, I, I sort of uh, regret uh, looking back because I don't see him playing, uh, the, the government of India, playing uh, an active role. And Sark being dead for several years and the only regional board, uh, discussion uh, that we had and sort of... Um, I mean, these are things that we need to sort of um, work towards in, uh, in, in South Asia. And I don't see that um, sort of role being played, probably because India's past being um, part of the colonial empire, as well as the Nehru's um, adoption of the sort of Monroy Doctrine mentality to leave the uh, outside powers out of the region. 
And, um, and Sri Lanka, if you look at it from the history in 1977, we were one of the first to uh, tie up uh, with, with the United States and uh, start the open economy. And when we did that, we had problems from India and uh, you, you know the, the issues that we face. But now that we both are in the same position, then uh, both countries can work together. I, I, I take you to 1971 of the, um, the then the, the, the first woman prime minister of the world, which we had, uh, Madam Bandaranaika. She sort of rightly supported this initiative as the Indian Ocean as a zone for peace. And Sri Lanka could play uh, one of the pivotal roles in this, uh, in this situation. Basically, if you sort of revive this uh, concept, and Sri Lankan um, Prime Minister back then sort of supported this. Uh, Europe, European countries supported this initiative. This was during the Cold War uh, time, different in a different period. But even now, to, to sort of uh, balance these the spheres of influence and what's going on, and sort of uh, it's, a, it's a very important sort of strategy to look at. Um, and, and to sort of, let me end it with uh, actually Sri Lanka's role as a stabilizer. So uh, if India, uh, and Sri Lanka and Japan um, uh, sort of work together. The quadruple um, relationship, which you mentioned, the US, Japan, India, and Sri Lanka. And if you strengthen that, and that will be a significant uh, sort of, uh, uh, I think, an uh, improvement uh, in the entire region. It will help the region. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Asanga. Um, I will now lead on with a couple of questions. And for the rest of you, the audience, um, I'm sure there are many questions as well. So uh, prepare your questions. And of course, as always, primarily questions, not a sort of a, uh, a long uh, monologue. My, my first would be to Tushi. When you touched about offshore balancing, and I combined that with seeing Satro as sort of the new and the old alliance, and there is more of a network uh, in the region. And then ask you, could offshore balancing for the US be enough in the sense that if all the countries themselves, India, Japan, now to a much larger degree, cooperate, does the US, and particularly uh, for an administration and a president, he was very focused on how do regional allies do more, how do we create a better burden sharing? Um, what's your thought? You, you talked a little bit about it, mentioned it, but didn't really think it as a viable strategy. Offshore balancing, is that an option? For the U.S. Well, I you know I think that there are uh, people with different definitions of what offshore balancing means, and I I was referring mostly to the International Relations School of Thought about offshore balancing, which, in a word, is to bring America home, right? To reduce American commitments, to probably close down bases uh, that it has had um, established since the end of World War II to withdraw from uh, key treaty obligations, or at least to substantially reduce American commitments to those treaty obligations. Um, it seems to me that um, that's, that's not a viable option, um, and that really what the United States needs to do is, well, first of all, it's important to note that it is the United States that's able to maintain the favorable balance of power in the critical parts around the Eurasian landmass, whether it's Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East, that's enabled the maturation and development of this liberal international order. And that this liberal international order fundamentally has been underwritten by American hard power, the capacity to deter, but ultimately to defeat uh, the potential of regional hegemons from overturning the particular existing order. 
Uh, and without the United States, uh, it leaves a very big open question as to who and what would be able to sustain this existing order. So I think my going in position would be that offshore balancing is really not um, an answer uh, to the challenges that we face today. But I think as that gap between American commitments and resources persist, um, it increasingly requires the frontline states in some ways to fill that gap. Uh, and that my, my position would be that the United States does not need to be front and center of all of those collaborative efforts. That, in my view, the frontline states have their own incentives to collaborate and to cooperate with each other, to form their own networks. Some of them may be helped by the United States. Some of them may not be directly related to the United States. But I think all of those activities designed to, for example, counterbalance uh, China's influence across the Indo-Pacific region is all to the good. Because I think many of those countries that are collaborating with each other are like-minded states, have shared interests in maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, that's designed to prevent uh, local powers from changing the status quo unilaterally. So that would be my answer. Thanks. Satru, I enjoyed your presentation a lot, particularly the, the sort of the why, why, why we leave. And so I have a sort of how, how, how question. Um, and would be how the, the Japanese government, if you say this is of the growing importance, how do you convince the US government, uh, which has there are so many other issues that you also want to discuss. Abe has just been on a visit. Imagine sort of the big topics being North Korea, being trade. How do you, how would be your argument for saying why the Indian Ocean is also really up there among the top priorities that they should discuss? Hmm. Th that is a very um, important uh, question. How to motivate them? Hmm. For a long time, <coughs> Why U.S. abandoned the Indian Ocean is because far from uh, the United States. That is one reason. So, but we cannot change the uh, geographical situation in this case. But uh, at the same time, uh, <coughs> so thanks to the China's moves, we can persuade the people to join the something in the Indian Ocean. So one of the reasons is so maybe in this case. Uh, China is changing the situation related with the Indian Ocean. That is the first one. So we try to focus on this. It's one reason. So that is the reason I analyze China's activities and try to inform the people that this is really happened. But at the same time, the US should realize it, China's potential. The, when we see the map of the Mercator-based map, China is not so big country compared with the United States. Because, but the real territory area of China is um, maybe similar with the United States. Indeed. So they are very big country indeed. Bigger countries than the map. So this kind of the facts, view from this kind of facts, in China, United States should more focus on China Currently, the United States people focus on Russia a lot, but compared with, the, compared with Russia, the United States forget about China. So to motivate the people, maybe we should focus on China. It's a very important factor, I think. And second reason we should focus on India. India will be right. 
and uh, there are many economic opportunities. But at the same time, to, when Indian rights, the issue of the Indian Ocean will come. This is the maybe well, India and Indian Ocean is well connected issue. So focus on India is second one, I think. Mm. This is the idea I have. Okay. Thanks. Thank well, thanks a lot. That's a good segue to India to uh, turn to Apana and, uh, and a question on that. You ended your um, presentation with uh, sort of mentioning the friendly trolling of the, uh, the Indian and the Chinese navies in the Indian Ocean. So uh, how do you see this developing Will uh, into uh, potential more conflictual or more cooperation beyond Twitter? Um, uh, it's taken a very long time for, for Delhi to realize the threat um, within both South Asia and the Indian Ocean region from what China is doing. Uh, part of it is that, I mean, it's not as though there weren't people talking about it. So strategists have been talking about the string of pearls theory, which Asanga put up on his slide, that, in, that China has been building bases and ports and is trying to encircle India. But that didn't, I mean, sort of didn't seep into um, the Indian Security Administration for a long period of time. And uh, the countermeasures they need to take uh, is taken, taken India almost a few decades to actually start working on that. First is uh, ignoring the power of economics. So Delhi believed that, you know, uh, with its neighbors, its cultural uh, relationship, the fact that, you know, they are immediate neighbors and they understand what India is doing, um, that is enough. Uh, India ignored the fact that they also have certain needs and interests. They need uh, something more than they're just pledging some economic aid and not actually delivering on it uh, or not taking care of their interests. So that's part of it. Second is that um, India believed that most of the countries in South Asia and the Indian Ocean region would by and large be on India's side and would not take um, an interest which is inimicable uh, without actually explaining it to those countries and actually investing um, in relationships, economic and strategic. Um, it's trying to sort of play catch up now, but it will take a long time. Uh, it needs uh, sustained investment at the diplomatic level. It needs sustained uh, economic assistance. Uh, it also needs India's own military modernization, which has been going on for almost a few decades now. Thank you. Um, Sangha, that was a very interesting presentation. I always love it when you get to the think with maps in new ways. So the, the world island of Mackinder and of the UK, Japan, and then Sri Lanka, sort of the third hub of the, of the islands that sort of are, are uh, sort of encirculating the bigger world island. I found that was very interesting. I wanted to ask you about starting off with, because you mentioned uh, sort of China, China's uh, One Bell, One Road project uh, and compared it to the Marshall Plan. Um, my question there would be to you whether there isn't a big difference because uh, you see lots of reports also about uh, that it actually many of these projects leads to sort of depth afterwards in the in the recipient countries, um, and you mentioned that it was a loan. Uh, so I wanted both of you to take on that whether it's, it's it's sort of really fair to compare it to the Marshall Plan, and then for a smaller country like Sri Lanka, whether this creates dependencies. I mean, the port looks. Beautiful, but whether it also creates dependencies, that are, that's a challenge for your um, uh, for your uh, independence as well. Uh, I think the Sri Lankan government, uh, uh, most of the steps that was taken um, on these decisions are carefully calibrated. 
um, the, the media, although it highlights that uh, they're just sort of knee-jerk reactions that was taken, but they're not. We have actually done careful study on these uh, when we are sort of even leasing out or when we are sort of... Uh, and our president, uh, if you look at it, has uh, much more experience. He's about 35 years of in and so much of experience. And so if you if you look at even the officers uh, in the foreign foreign service, they come with sort of uh, a carefully calibrated. Because we, we cannot, uh, we, I mean, we cannot allow any military base, number one. And we will not allow military base because we are going in that theme in the 1971, which I mentioned, that a zone for peace. We are promoting a zone for peace. And we, even during the Cold War, uh, we, we supported the non-aligned, going the non-aligned camp. And um, I mean, you have to understand the economic condition of a country. Uh, our per capita is about $3,500. And um, this is the highest in South Asia. Uh, this is a South Asian country. So you are looking at uh, a very poor country. I mean, you're not looking at a very rich country, right? So you have to understand whoever gives loans to us uh, to build stuff, to develop our infrastructure, uh, we would be accepting because to develop our economy. And uh, China is the only country which has come forward with a large amount of money. And uh, if you look at even the regional countries surrounding India, this, this is the situation. So I think India should play a bigger role uh, in this situation because uh, I don't see India playing that uh, the bigger role in the region. And if you look at Nepal, uh, how many governments they had, I mean, for the last several months uh, is in chaos. Bangladesh, uh, Pakistan, uh, the entire region, if you, if you can do a careful study of it, I mean, we, we need to stabilize the region, number one. We need to improve the economic condition. So you cannot sort of blame somebody who's giving the loans and say that these are predatory loans. Or you cannot sort of, um, you can't see it as a predatory loan. Because people will not accept it. If you go and talk about in Sri Lanka and um, on a platform saying that these are predatory loans into the public, I mean, I'm talking about the public of Sri Lanka, people will say, what predatory loan are you talking about? Because these, are, these loans have helped us. For example, giving us a highway. Uh, I mean, Hambantota. I mean, in terms of security, you don't actually that that uh, I don't sort of agree with that. That we uh, we will allow for bases or that sort of thing. Because Sri Lanka would never do that. Okay, thanks. Well, the audience now I open it up, and I can see already a host of hands going up. So let me uh, start over here. Two gentlemen. Yeah, yes. Peter, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask the panel about the role of uh, East Africa. Um, China is investing very heavily there. Uh, the PLA just recently sent a medical team to Mozambique. Um, and uh, if you, uh, the, if the panel could talk about the strategic significance um, and also Japanese and uh, Indian pushback in that region. I think that must be a question to Aparna and Satro. So if you uh, start off. So um, India's, I mean, India's relationship with East Africa actually is very old, uh, not just culture, but actually assistance, so technical assistance, educational, um, dates back a few decades now. Uh, Anti-piracy uh, is more recent. Uh, strategic relationship has built up over the years, actually, just as we speak, um, um, the, um, the Ethiopian president is in India, and so there was, uh, so India is trying to uh, build the strategic dimension of, you know, building more closer military and defense ties. But until recently, it was more 
um, economic, educational, and technical. Um, but India has built closer relationship with Madagascar and going all the way up to uh, Ethiopia. I know Saturo has some more information on that, so I'll let him answer that part of the question. So this means that uh, I need to inform uh, in India's number activity in the East Africa? Yes. OK. Uh, so view from the Japan side, uh, maybe uh, analysis about the India's neighbor move in the East Africa is uh, they have already set up the base in the Madagascar as a communication center, and uh, Mauritius also. And uh, in the Seychelles, uh, reviewed the document set, media report set, uh, India will set up the neighbor base in Seychelles. And uh, so then the, in the Oman, uh, India will take, or the Japan explained the document port India Navy will use. So connected with the, this uh, port and the communication facility, the India can, Indian Navy can deploy uh, to safeguard the civilian communication in the East Africa, uh, coast of the East Africa. So this is a maybe good move to so deploy more warship in the near future. But uh, at the same time, the uh, questioner want to know the infrastructure project in the East Africa case and as a banner of the uh, Asia Africa Economic Corridor. And uh, in this case, uh, maybe this project has just started, but uh, uh, looks like the one belt, one road project, now belt and road initiative. To, this big name, uh, this name of the flags, it's uh, one kind of the symbolic uh, something, a symbolic uh, rock. So China has already done many infrastructure projects. After that, they try to create one word, and uh, all of the infrastructure is looks like under the one strategy. That is a pattern. So Japan's and India's cases are a little similar. Japan has already invested many infrastructure projects in Africa. And uh, uh, Dr. Pan has already mentioned about uh, India's community in East Africa. So India has knowledge in Africa. So if Japan and India uh, collaborate in this case, and uh, Japan can get uh, local information from the Indian community in East Africa and invest effectively. So. So we have already invested many infrastructure and so start to cooperate with India. And we can say that these are the project uh, is a part of the Africa Economic Corridor. We can, uh, uh, Gross Corridor uh, project, so we can say. So this, pro and uh, Japan and India has already uh, negotiated uh, and six times as a formal uh, meeting of, uh, about African policy. So, and uh, indeed, the United States and India has already discussed about this too. And the uh, United States, uh, under the African command of the US, uh, the United States and India has already collaborated the military issue. So Japan, if Japan, US, India collaborate, uh, indeed, I have already collaborated, I think, but uh, collaborate the military part, economic part, and local information, all the things we can get. So this. And this uh, Asia-Africa growth corridor has a big potential to deal with, I think, but just started. Thank you. Thanks, the gentleman next to, and yeah, state your name and affiliation, and if any, I forgot. Archibald Hamilton. Uh, uh, I would just like to have more information about the <coughs> concept or the notion of uh, Sri Lanka being a stabilizer. 
what are the key elements, the indicator that will uh, explain this fact? Thank you. Thanks. I think that was clearly a question to you. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's a huge role that Sri Lanka could play in the region. And um, if you look back, um, say, 70 years now, we won independence. Uh, it's been 70 years from the British. Um, but the, we have, we still have failed as a country sort of to give a better life. I mean, we still had the 3,500 per capita and all that. India also is about 70, 70 years independence. But then again, when you look back the 70 years, we cannot blame the external actors or the people, you know, we cannot blame the colonial past also because 70 years you had 70 years to fix the problems. And so I think if both the countries, uh, the regional power is, is India and India and Sri Lanka work collaboratively, we can stabilize and Sri, Sri Lanka being a neutral country from, I mean, being an island, especially geographically, well, you have an advantage, number one. India and Pakistan both come to talk in, in Sri Lanka. I mean, both the parties come there, sort of, you know, we, when we have a discussion of Indian discussions, we have a request from Pakistan, let's do a Pakistani panel. So I think both can talk in this neutral uh, sort of uh, geographical location. And also, um, if you look at the, the, uh, the, 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 as the economic situation, like being open in 1977, and uh, one of the first countries to open up, uh, you know, adopting democracy from the beginning, as well as, you know, so uh, rich in many institutions, the rich institutions, just like India. And there is a lot that uh, we could do, I mean, the both countries. But if you look at the 30-year civil war we had, we had very unfortunate time uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, and during that time, the policies have been sort of shifted from, from different prime ministers of India. And certain, uh, I mean, one incident, one uh, I would say a very uh, an ugly incident that we have is that uh, you know allowing the, the the training camps of the uh, the rebel uh, rebel group LTT so to to be based in in India in South India. So those things are are strains in our relationship and which actually affected both countries. Uh, they they killed our president. They killed. The prime minister. So, so basically, both countries were affected. Now we have learned lessons. Uh, we have everything in our sort of right in front of our face. So, we both could work together, build the uh, strengthen the relationship to sort of make uh, the entire region uh, stabilize. So, Sri Lanka. I see Sri Lanka playing a huge role in the next uh, couple of. I mean, I would say a decade or after. I mean, if you. Even the OBOR, India does not need to sort of uh, worry. Even the last submarine visit, uh, we was, I mean, the Chinese submarine visit, if you must have heard from the news and all that, there was serious tension between Delhi and Colombo, uh, which should not be the case. I mean, uh, when you look deep into that uh, situation uh, and when you analyze that, uh, speak to the people who was actually engaged in that, um, the foreign policy issues, uh, that's not the case. And I, uh, there's a shocking thing is that um, it was it was a political situation that was not a foreign policy issue at all because India knew uh, this this was happening as well as this was informed and it was not a knee jerk reaction it was a carefully calibrated thing and we uh, even the last submarine visit um, uh, was 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 sort of denied and then uh, that, that's what, that was when Prime Minister Modi was in the island uh, so there, there is uh, I would say. Um, I mean, although there is the relationship going on, but there sh should be strengthened more. And Sri Lanka should be, India should see Sri Lanka as a stabilizer and give that position so we could work together. So.
I saw a couple of hands over here, the gentleman all the way in the back. Uh, yes, my name is Roger Cochetti, and the uh, moderator opened the panel by explaining that the one of the major issues that needed to be discussed was resources in the context of American military expansion in the Indian Ocean. And I wanted to come back to that issue, although we've discussed it a little bit. It is overwhelmingly the dominant um, issue. Anyone who takes a quick look at the statistics will quickly see that the United States spends about 4% of our GDP on military. And if you really fully loaded it with the interest on the debt that is attributable to military spending and veterans benefits attributable to military activity, it's between 5 and 10%. Um, India and Australia are at around 2%, and Japan's at around 1%. And faced with that situation, we hear that the Japanese and the Indians are quite concerned about Chinese expansion in the Indian Ocean. While, now, clearly, if I were Japanese, I would say the United States needs to do more and more and more. And if I were Indian, I would probably say the United States needs to do more and more and more. But why isn't the obvious solution that if the Japanese and the Australians and the Indians simply brought their level of military spending up to the American level, um, you would clearly solve the problem quickly. And before I hear the answer that says, oh my goodness, the Koreans and the Vietnamese and the Taiwanese, it w it's been almost 100 years since Japanese military expansion in East Asia took place. So it's not the parents or the grandparents, it's the great-grandparents of the people of Korea and Vietnam who, who had to deal with Japanese military expansion. And before, they, before we hear that, oh, we have to amend our constitution, the United States is being told, American citizens are being told, we need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars increasing our militarization of space. We need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars uh, upgrading our nuclear strategic forces. We need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on everything else. So I don't know why the, answer, the obvious answer is not Let's try to take it up here on the panel. It's a great question about burden sharing. So, Satru, I'll, I'll put you on the spot first and say, why doesn't Japan just move to 2% of uh, GDP? So <laughs> that would sort of solve <laughs> on defense. That would solve. Okay, four. Yes. Okay. Oh, I was wow. being, I, I translated into something modest. That was still very ambitious for Japan. But uh, we can even try four percent, and and then all the the issues that you showed up on the map would be solved because Japan could do more or less all of it on its own. Uh, in my past personal opinion, uh, Japan should increase the defense budget. That is true. But at the same time, the why is, uh, such kind of opinion is not popular in Japan. It's another problem in this case. Firstly, yeah. um, uh, we worry about neighbors. That's also true. You, <laughs> question I hope will be mentioned. But at the same time, uh, 70 years uh, we have already spent as a pacifist country. And uh, our mindset has uh, adjusted such kind of situation, and we cannot change so easily. And during that time, we create a huge debate ourselves. And uh, so to increase the defense budget, we need to take the budget from other, for example, healthcare, for example, uh, many things, any other things. But, uh, 
not easy to persuade them to abandon the some budget. So, in, now firstly, we need we need to in this Japanese need to change our mindset. Uh, we satisfy the situation, we enjoy the life, and we do not want to change. That is the situation. That is very terrible indeed, because the security situation is very wrong, and people try to ignore it. China come, yes, peaceful come, no problem. You know, such kind of Japanese we can find in Japan. That unfortunately, that's true. So we need to pass with them. Thanks. And maybe, Toshi, if you have any comments on this as well, I mean, it, it links a little bit with my question of offshore balancing as well. How does the U.S. get allies to do more? Is it by investing more by the U.S. themselves, or is it by withdrawing it a little bit, and then the others sort of have to fill the gap? What's, what's the best way to, to get to a more equitable burden sharing? Well, it has been an enduring challenge for the United States to get all of its allies and any of its allies to, to do more. Uh, that's been a constant refrain in terms of America's allied relationship with virtually all of its uh, partners and friends. Uh, but I think uh, rather than uh, focusing on how much our allies should spend, it's really uh, how we should get our allies and friends to uh, structure their existing forces in ways that can help restore balance to the Indo-Pacific region. So. The going in position is to assume that dramatic changes in the defense budgets of our allies are not going to change uh, anytime soon, but that the composition of the forces, the emphasis on the kinds of forces that are used, I think if you can reorient allies to posture themselves differently, I think that, that would pay dividends in terms of uh, restoring the balance. Thanks. Uh, one here. And, or let's, yeah, and then let's take uh, one more afterwards over here, then we take. Oh, three. Okay, we can just manage three quickly, but then we'll take all three of them and go back to the panel for a final round. Your views on to what extent a reset in relations between India and China is possible? Um, have issues such as sovereignty related to China-Pakistan economic corridor, Hong Kong crisis, the Maldives crisis. Has that locked in an adversarial mindset in New Delhi, or is it a real prospect? Thank you. Then over here. My name is uh, Don Kirk. The overwhelming emphasis here is on the military issue. Uh, what about Trans-Pacific Partnership? What about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank? What about the Asia Development Bank? What are their competing roles in the region? Uh, I could make this question a speech, but that's just a question. And you got those initials out there. And if you could discuss them and their significance and get away a little bit from the military, uh, that would be very helpful, I think. Thank you. Perfect. And one last question here. I'm Jerry Glenn with the Millennium Project, an old Hudson Institute consultant back in the 70s. Um, I thought you did some nice work on the geopolitical, as, as you mentioned, but it did not bring in some, as much of the economic. And I would take it up a step further. It's probably safe to assume that China's information warfare assets, methods, and tactics will be far more in the next 25 years than the last 25 years. So when you talk about China's growing influence, uh, information systems, I think, really have to be at least given equal attention. Thanks. So I will first, uh, upon here on the specific question on India and China, and, if, uh, and then I'll go along sort of the panel and say both your final remarks, but of course addressing the question both economics, did we talk too little about the uh, economic integration and competition as well in um, 
uh, in the region and um, combine that. So first you. Um, there are still competing views in India, um, whether, whether how far India should push China, how far China really wants to push India. And so there are those who argue, let us compartmentalize issues. So let's you know, deal with the economic issues, uh, which are easier to deal with. Um, let's, put the, let's put Tibet and the Northeast. Let's put uh, the issue of Pakistan and uh, the border issue um, on the back burner. Uh, continue conversation, continue dialogues, but don't let that derail the India-China relationship fully. Um, on the other hand, uh, Delhi would also like to send a message. So, a, so Doklam was a way of sending a message that you can't just keep pushing us, and it's not as though we will not respond. But neither do we actually want a war with you, because we believe you don't want a war with us either. Um, so they, that, that, that is there, and that's what um, may happen in, in next week's meeting or the week after when Prime Minister Modi and President Xi meet uh, at the SCO summit. There will most likely be a, a meeting with the two of them. Uh, and there is talk of a reset, but it's mainly um, that New Delhi doesn't want to push China too far. On the other hand, it wants China to acknowledge that, that, that it can't push uh, India as well. Um, and um, so that's, that's what's happening at that end. Economic integration, did we talk too little about um, both the opportunities and the challenges between the different organizations in the, in the region? Ah, oh, um, so, you, so um, you mean SARC and all? Um, yeah, I was trying to, yeah. the question okay. from this gentleman about whether we ended up talking way too much about military and too little about TPP. TPP um, actually, India isn't a part of TPP, so India doesn't have anything, uh, I mean, in, Um, so, so uh, Delhi is more supportive of the Japanese infrastructure because Jap uh, uh, India sees uh, the Japanese quadrilateral defense infrastructure that as something uh, which can counter BRI in the region. So, Japanese infrastructure investment, whether under uh, the, the qualitative infrastructure or under ADB, um, would be something India welcomes in Bangladesh, in, in Nepal, in Sri Lanka. Uh, in any of the regions, uh, any of the areas around India, and, and in India, Japan is investing a lot. India is a member of Asian Infrastructure Bank. Um, it's also a member of the BRICS Bank. It's a founding member in both of those incidents. Um, and, and India has taken and will take some, invest, some infrastructure assistance from the AIIB. But that's because India believes India is in AIIB, and it can, to some extent, uh, control where that money goes. Uh, but it doesn't mean that India is going to be solely dependent on AIIB. India would much rather um, take investment from Japan or uh, ADB or World Bank than from any institution where it believes Beijing has the, has the final say and control. And to, to give you an example, some years ago, um, the Asian, Asian development, ADB turned down a loan for India uh, developing India's Northeast, Arunachal Pradesh, because China objected and say, said that uh, China lays claim to Arunachal Pradesh. Um, so India does not want something like that to happen again. Asanga, your um, final thoughts, and did we talk too much about the military and too little about the economic aspects in, in the region? Well, I think, um, uh, well, 
uh, sort of comment on what you uh, mentioned, um, uh, the basically on R the R&D and information systems. For the next 25 years, I think there will be a lot of investments going in from the Chinese uh, information systems. And I kind of see this uh, for the last four or five years, um, been sort of looking at the, you know, um, the innovation, the patent license and all that. So the information system, there'll be huge investment going in there. So that's going to sort of uh, change, um, I mean, their role uh, in the entire world, I would say. And one of the, another uh, project is the CPEC, uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, that will alter the geography. I mean, it is already altered. I mean, so the project is about 70% 70, 70 completed, according to the Pakistani. But um, that would alter the trade patterns in the region. And um, that's another uh, part. And economic uh, situation needs to improve, and you're looking at, uh, 400, about 400 million in uh, India in poverty. We have about 40 percent in uh, Sri Lanka uh, in poverty. So uh, this has to change, and uh, the political leadership has to sort of uh, address this. And um, I mean, failing um, the trust deficit, I see a serious trust deficit in South Asia and region. I mean. Uh, this is the reason, um, I mean, SARC, if you look at it, we need to refunction. I mean, a lot of work has been done on SARC. You just can't sort of kill it. Uh, it's just impossible to do that. And for the last three years, we didn't have the SARC. So we need to restart this economic dialogue uh, between, because if you don't have a dialogue, um, a platform to talk, uh, so you cannot talk about economic cooperation. So uh, you don't have a platform right now. So you need to restart this. It's really, really important. And um, on the, the, I mean, if the India as well as uh, Sri Lanka, um, like I earlier mentioned, so to work uh, together and give uh, Sri Lanka the role also identify as a stabilizer in the region, so that that would help the entire region. So I'll conclude. Thanks. Uh, mindful of time that I can see as as a moderator, I'll just Soshi, if you have any uh, uh, last remarks on uh, on this. Yeah, just very quickly, I agree that the military component is only one part of the competition. In fact, the larger competition in, is in the other elements of national power, whether it's diplomatic, economic, or informational. And on the informational piece, I think the Chinese have been doing a much better job spinning a narrative about their strategy, both in the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean. This is an area that the United States has not done well enough, even though I believe the United States and its allies have a great story to tell, but that story needs to be told after we follow up by f operationalizing an Indo-Pacific strategy. Great. Satru, any last uh, remarks? Uh, the, of course, uh, it looks like this is a military issue, but the economic front is very important because our logic is a little strange. We pay the money to China, and China spends uh, um, much military budget, um, and we blame it. A little strange. We should not pay. So economic front is indeed very important. So TPP is one of the response, and uh, maybe trade war is part of it. And so such kind of the, uh, economic front is very important aspect of, as a uh, strategic issue. Uh, we should uh, realize that, and uh, also I should mention that. Thanks. Well, I want to thank all our panelists. Thank you, the audience, for being here today.